You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's Wednesday, October 5th, 2022, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, Russia's Nord Stream pipelines were sabotaged in a kinetic attack. NSA and CISA have issued guidance on ICS threats. Ukraine anticipates Russian cyber attacks against the energy sector. Dragos receives CVE numbering authority, and CISA releases more ICS advisories. Later in the show, we'll have an update from our guest, Dragos's Don Capelli, on the Dragos OT Cert, now that it's live and providing free resources to small and medium-sized organizations with OT environments. In part two of our Learning Lab segment on electricity, Mark Urban is joined by Dragos's Senior Director of Strategy, Phil Tonkin. Now that we know how much electricity is generated, Phil sheds some light on where it all goes. Our first story isn't a cyber attack. It's traditional, if advanced, kinetic sabotage, but it brings the threat to critical infrastructure into sharp relief. The Nord Stream pipeline appears to have been sabotaged. Swedish monitoring stations early Monday morning detected two explosions in the Baltic Sea near the pipelines, Bloomberg reports. Natural gas has been breaking to the surface in the vicinity of the breaks in the pipeline. Again, this isn't a cyber attack, but rather a more traditional act of kinetic sabotage. The incident does, however, indicate the substantial gray zone threat to critical infrastructure. The Washington Post writes that the explosions, which occurred in international waters near the Danish island of Borum, broke two Nord Stream 1 lines and one Nord Stream 2 line. The Swedish National Seismic Network and Germany's Research Center for Geosciences both say that their observations indicate an artificial, human-induced explosion, not a natural seismic event. Danish Prime Minister Meta Fredriksson said yesterday, These are deliberate actions, not an accident. The situation is as serious as it gets. Investigation is in progress. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov denied any Russian involvement and said that Moscow was extremely concerned about the incident. The Nord Stream pipelines deliver natural gas from Russia to Germany and from there to other European users. Nord Stream 1 hasn't functioned since August after Russia shut it down in response to imposition of sanctions by the European Union, and Nord Stream 2 hasn't yet received authority to operate, so severing them has no immediate effect on European natural gas supplies. The proximate concerns are environmental, and large-scale leaks of residual methane in the lines are worrisome. The U.S. National Security Agency and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency on Thursday issued a joint cybersecurity advisory outlining threats to operational technology and industrial control systems, stating... Cyber actors, from cyber criminals to state-sponsored APT actors, target critical infrastructure to achieve a variety of objectives. 
Cyber criminals are financially motivated and target OT and ICS assets for financial gain. State-sponsored APT actors target critical infrastructure for political and or military objectives, such as destabilizing political or economic landscapes or causing psychological or social impacts on a population. The cyber actor selects the target and intended effect to disrupt, disable, deny, deceive, and or destroy based on these objectives. For example, disabling power grids in strategic locations could destabilize economic landscapes or support broader military campaigns. Disrupting water treatment facilities or threatening to destroy a dam could have psychological or social impacts on a population. The agencies explain that most threat actors targeting ICS systems, regardless of their motive, typically attempt to achieve the following goals. Degrade the operator's ability to monitor the targeted system or degrade the operator's confidence in the control system's ability to operate, control, or monitor the targeted system. Operate the targeted system. Impair the system's ability to report data. Deny the operator's ability to control the targeted system and enable remote or local reconnaissance on the control system. NSA and CISA explain the potential consequences of these attacks, stating, Using these techniques, cyber actors could cause various physical consequences. They could open or close breakers, throttle valves, overfill tanks, set turbines to overspeed, or place plants in unsafe operating conditions. Additionally, cyber actors could manipulate the control environment, obscuring operator awareness and obstructing recovery by locking interfaces and setting monitors to show normal conditions. Actors can even suspend alarm functionality, allowing the systems to operate under unsafe conditions without alerting the operator. Even when physical safety systems should prevent catastrophic physical consequences, more limited effects are possible and could be sufficient to meet the actor's intent. In some scenarios, though, if an actor simultaneously manipulates multiple parts of the system, the physical safety systems may not be enough. Impacts to the system could be temporary or permanent, potentially even including physical destruction of equipment. The agencies offer extensive advice on defending against these attacks in their report. Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency said last Monday that it's anticipating massive cyber attacks from Russia targeting the energy sector of Ukraine and its allies, stating, The Kremlin is planning to carry out massive cyber attacks on the critical infrastructure facilities of Ukrainian enterprises and critical infrastructure institutions of Ukraine's allies. First of all, attacks will be aimed at enterprises of the energy sector. The experience of cyber attacks on Ukraine's energy systems in 2015 and 2016 will be used when conducting operations. By the cyber attacks, the enemy will try to increase the effect of missile strikes on electricity supply facilities, primarily in the eastern and southern regions of Ukraine. The occupying command is convinced that this will slow down the offensive operations of the Ukrainian defense forces. The Kremlin also intends to increase the intensity of DDoS attacks on the critical infrastructure of Ukraine's closest allies, primarily Poland and the Baltic states. Dragos has been designated a CVE numbering authority by the CVE program. Dragos explains the implications of the designation, stating, As a CNA, Dragos is authorized to assign CVE IDs to newly discovered vulnerabilities, 
and publicly disclose information about these vulnerabilities through CVE records. This includes assigning CVE IDs to vulnerabilities found in the company's own products as well as any third-party products not covered by another CNA that Dragos finds through its ongoing research to help organizations protect their ICS and OT systems. The CVE program is sponsored by the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and administered by the MITRE Corporation. Since our last podcast episode, CISA has released over a dozen ICS advisories addressing issues with products from Medtronic, Hitachi, Mitsubishi, Delta Electronics, and others. Be sure to check out the complete list on CISA's website. I recently checked in with Dragos's Don Capelli on the Dragos OT cert now that it's live and providing free resources to small and medium-sized organizations with OT environments. Here's my conversation with Don Capelli. The mission at Dragos is safeguarding civilization and we realize that if we truly mean that and we truly want to safeguard civilization, we can't just protect the companies that can afford to buy products and services from Dragos. We need to also provide resources for the small and medium-sized organizations that haven't started their cybersecurity journey or think that they need cybersecurity experts to do it. We need to help them because we're all in one large ecosystem. And we've seen supply chain attacks. We've seen ransomware targeting small and medium-sized organizations. And that has impacts to critical infrastructure, or it has operational impacts on their customers. So we started OTCERT to provide resources for those small and medium-sized organizations so that they can start that cybersecurity journey and build a security program that meets all of the fundamental requirements. Well, and and we should mention OT-CERT stands for Operational Technology Cyber Emergency Readiness Team. Um, How would uh, most uh, organizations interact with what you've spun up there? Well, the first thing that they need to do is apply for membership. OT-CERT is totally free, but it is limited to organizations that have an OT environment. So they go to the Dragos website, they apply for membership. Once their membership is approved, then they will start getting access. First of all, when they first apply, they'll get access to everything that we've supplied so far. And then every month we put out new resources for our OT CERT members. So they'll start getting um, that additional access on a month-to-month basis. And to what degree is this collaborative? I mean, is to is the information generally flowing in one direction or is there an opportunity for uh, input or comment from the people who are participating? I'm very excited that you asked about that, Dave. Um, 
I strongly believe that small businesses need more interaction because to them, cybersecurity is scary and they don't have the expertise that they think they need to build a program. So we just scheduled our first two workshops. Um, We're going to have a workshop at the Xylem Reach Conference in October And that is open to all attendees, um, but we're really targeting small organizations with less than 500 employees. And then our second workshop will be for the Water ISAC at their national summit in November. So we're starting with these workshops. We're running tabletop exercises. So it will be a ransomware NOT tabletop. And what we want to do is we want to have the attendees learn from each other and we want to learn from them. So we need to learn what are small and medium-sized businesses doing that all OT CERT members should consider doing to prepare for a potential ransomware attack. So we're starting the interactivity with those workshops. We're also developing a portal And that portal will have interactivity built in so that they'll be able to comment and ask for help. And then third, we're considering starting to hold monthly sessions where kind of like office hours, where our members can just kind of step in to the Zoom meeting and ask questions and we can interact um, about the resources that we've provided. That's a really interesting insight. I mean, I would imagine that a lot of those small and medium-sized businesses, while they certainly have uh, their limits when it comes to resources and so forth, I mean, they have the ability to be nimble, to, to try different things out. Yes, and we are designing our resources with that in mind. We don't want them to have to go out and hire anyone new to implement these cybersecurity resources. So, for example... Our first resource in August was an OT cybersecurity fundamentals self-assessment survey. (laughs) We need an acronym for that. It basically, it takes under an hour. They can hand it to their plant engineers and either their IT team or service provider and have them fill it out. It's very easy. Yes and no questions. Do you do this? Yes or no. It's not a maturity level survey. It's very simple. And this will enable them to identify their gaps. Then what we're doing is we're releasing new resources each month that will help them to fill those gaps. So for instance, in August, we also released an asset management toolkit. The asset management toolkit is intended, that's the foundation of a cybersecurity program. So we wanted to give them that first, but then we thought, well, you know, the chances of them being hit by a cyber attack have greatly escalated recently. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So we Hmm. really do want them to be prepared in case they do get hit. So we jumped ahead then to incident response. So in September, we gave them a self-service OT ransomware tabletop toolkit. This way, they can conduct a tabletop exercise themselves. They don't have to pay anyone to come in, 
bring in your plant engineers. If you have an IT person or an IT team, bring them into it. But primarily, who's going to notice if you get hit with a cyber attack in OT? It will be the people in the plants. And so that's the people that you need as the primary participants in this tabletop. Now, Don, this isn't just theoretical. I mean, we've seen some of these small and medium-sized businesses actually getting hit lately. Yes. Um, it was just reported recently. Uh, there was a study by the Institute for Security and Technology's Ransomware Task Force, and they found that in 2021, there were more than 4,000 confirmed ransomware incidents and 70% of those were aimed at entities employing fewer than 500 individuals. And almost half of those have OT environments, are in sectors with OT environments. So the small and medium-sized businesses are definitely being targeted. In addition, hackers in North Korea from the Holy Ghost Ransomware Group They've been targeting SMBs, small and medium-sized businesses. So, you know, I think the the larger size companies have really beefed up their, their security and they've taken a lot of measures to protect themselves. And the threat actors have taken note of that. And now they've realized it's easier to get at these small and medium-sized companies. And there are a lot of them out there. So I really need to spread the word about that so that SMBs understand you need to pay attention to this. So it seems to me that in addition to providing these tools and these assets, there really is some community building that's going on here as well. Yes, there is definitely community building. Um, I've been a big proponent of that since when I was CISO at Rockwell. I found that the most important thing in building an OT cybersecurity program was getting IT and OT to work together. So the community building starts within the organization. That's the first thing they need to do is start working together. For instance, we talked about the tabletop. If you get hit with a ransomware attack in OT or any kind of cyber attack, once they figure out, I think this might be a cyber attack, do they even know who to call? Do they know who the IT person is for their company? Where do you suppose this is headed? What are your, what's your vision for expanding this program and, and getting more folks involved? Well, getting more folks involved is the key. Right now, we're putting out these great resources, but my fear is that the small and medium-sized companies don't even know we exist because they aren't paying attention to cybersecurity or they feel like they know they should, but they don't know how, and they feel like they don't have the money or the people to do anything. So right now I'm trying to get the word out and to figure out how do we get to those small and medium-sized businesses. Once we do and we start working with them, for instance, in these workshops, then I'm hoping that they will spread the word. So word of mouth within their own community so that we can all start working together. The other thing is 
I realized the need for something like this when I was the CISO at Rockwell because we started being notified by our own suppliers in manufacturing that we were hit with a ransomware attack. It'll take at least a month to recover. We have no idea how long it will take to get you our product. And that's when I realized these small and medium-sized suppliers in our manufacturing organization, they don't pose a cyber risk to Rockwell, but they pose an operational risk to Rockwell. And so one thing that I am trying to do is to get the large companies out there to realize that, that you need to help spread the word to your own supply chain because these organizations pose an operational risk to your business. And, and I suppose as with any new effort like this, I mean, you, you know, you, you have the good name of Dragos behind you, but there's still an amount of trust building that has to go on here as well. Yes, there is. And, and it's not only trust, it's just that confidence that, oh, we can do this. You know, like I said, the asset management template, just it's a spreadsheet. Go, Your plant engineers are perfectly capable of going into the plant and filling this out. And if you get hit with a cyber attack, it will be immensely valuable to you to know what you have what version of the operating system and firmware everything was running, where are are the backups? Do we have backups? So I think it's trust and confidence building. The trust I need to get to in those workshops, and I just, you know, you asked about the vision. My vision is that this takes off and The resources, I mean, the quality of the resources that we're putting out is so impressive. And so what we need now is we need people to use them. We need people to talk about them. And then I envision in the future, we can define here are best practices for cybersecurity in a small and medium-sized organization. Right now, there is nothing like that out there. So, Dawn, I understand there, there's another little bit of business that uh, you want to, oh, I, I perhaps even say brag about, and that is uh, you all have become a CVV numbering authority. That that That's a, a, a big deal, yes? Yes, that is a big deal. We're very excited about that. We have uh, a, an incredible research team at Dragos that discovers vulnerabilities in industrial control system products. And so now as a CNA, a CVE numbering authority, we are now authorized to assign CVE IDs to those vulnerabilities. We work with the vendor to address those vulnerabilities, and then we can publicly disclose the information about the vulnerabilities in CVE records. So this this greatly enhances our ability to protect, protect the industrial control system community from security vulnerability. So we're very excited about that. Well, Don, best of luck with uh, the program here. I mean, hopefully uh, some of our listeners here can uh, check it out and also help spread the word among their colleagues and other organizations they know about. What's the best way for folks to find out more? 
They can go to dragos.com and under resources, go to OT cert. And in addition, if any of your listeners are interested in becoming a partner, we do have a partner program. We have ISACs that are partners, National Association of Manufacturers. We have state organizations that are responsible for critical infrastructure and cybersecurity in their state. And we have some international organizations that we're partnered with. So if anyone is interested in becoming a partner, I definitely would love to have you reach out. And you can just do that by emailing ot-cert at dragos.com. All right. Well, Don Capelli is the director of OT-CERT at Dragos. Don, thanks so much for taking the time for us today. Thank you so much. In part two of our Learning Lab segment on electricity, Mark Urban is joined by Dragos's Senior Director of Strategy, Phil Tonkin. All right, thanks and hello again. So in the last episode, we talked big numbers about electricity generation, 28,466 terawatt hours across the globe. That's a large amount. But today we're going to talk about where does it go? And we're talking about transmission of that electricity to your home. And for that, it involves uh, lots of lines in the grid. To help me with this part of our electric uh, industry journey, I'm joined by Phil Tonkin, Senior Director of Strategy here at Dragos. Part of Dragos, Phil spent a good chunk of his life working hands-on in the electric industry at the UK's National Grid, one of the largest utilities focused on both the transmission and distribution of electricity and gas, uh, operating both in the United Kingdom and the Northeast U.S. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Glad to be here. So on, on the last episode, we discussed like the sheer scale of electricity in that industry across the world. And now we want to talk about getting that electricity from where it's generated to where it's consumed. So can you help us kind of understand that? Yeah, there are many different uh, consumers of electricity. You know, a lot of it's for homes, and you know, getting it into uh, residential homes, you know, getting it in you know, houses and apartments. A lot of it goes to the you know, institutions that we're all dependent on: schools, hospitals, and then a lot of it going into industry, you know, factories, and of all scales and, and types, are consuming huge amounts of energy in every product that they create. So it's probably a good idea just to have a high-level look at electricity first and, and just see how it flows from, from one place to the next. You know, when you look at how you, um, you get electricity from, you know, throughout the supply chain, it is, you know, starts off in, in generation. It makes its way into transmission networks typically, then into distribution before it gets to those end users. And you've got you know, these high capacity transmission lines moving energy all over the country. It's uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's, a, it's a complex machine. It looks very static, and the energy that it's moving is invisible. But it's got to get from those you know those huge transmission lines through the distribution network and then down into into your to your homes. 
And in order to, to, to manage each of those transitions, you've got these things called substations, which are these, you know, often, you know, you know quite uh, anonymous looking facilities full of grey equipment, but they're absolutely critical to, uh, to how all of this thing works. You know, um, so we were moving energy or, you know, around, you know, quite, quite, uh, silently through the you know these 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 pieces of infrastructure which are just everywhere around us and you know, and and often you know that a lot of equipment is there and not and not explained so i need to you know whether it's uh, the transformers that are there within these sites that are stepping up and stepping down the energy the circuit breakers which are opening and closing those circuits so when it goes from you know, transmission to distribution through those you know those step up transformers you know, that are converting the energy into those you know those those different areas you know with it's you know, what is it doing and how is it uh how is it achieving what it's supposed to do is uh, you know is a complex picture I, I can imagine so you know all all that power having to move in in different areas but you talked about generation plant step up transformers transmission across large distances and stepping down uh, and then distribution eventually to, you know, to my house and my outlets. Is that high-level summary? That's, uh, yeah, it's a simplistic view, but that's exactly it. So let's talk a little bit, you know, as as we look at, you know, the descriptions of some of these things. You know, one one of the concepts we, we covered last week was watts, but now I see a lot more when it comes to the transmission side voltage you know stepping up voltage stepping down voltage can you kind of help us understand that you know typically you know the energy that we we're using in our house the electricity is coming out of sockets at various different voltages so you know at your home it'll be coming out of most of the outlets at 120 volts of alternating current you know so you um in some homes and you and coming ever in, uh, ever more prevalent with things like um heat pumps and electric car charging points we're seeing more appliances running at 240 volts in, you know in in the home in the uk where i live the you know the domestic outlet sockets are at 230 volts and actually you know in many countries that's that is the standard uh, for a, for a single phase supply um with 415 volts being um being the the higher voltage for those other high demand services it varies all over the world but ultimately it's it's in the same you know, order of magnitude you're talking a few hundred volts coming out of uh, of of the sockets in in the home but let's stick with the us voltage just just to keep things concise and clear so you've got these 120 volt circuits you know operating in your in your home but at a high on the high voltage transmission lines, they could be in the you know the hundreds of thousands of volts, you know anywhere between you know one hundred thirty eight thousand volts right the way up to you know seven hundred thirty five kilovolts. So it's a you know there's a you know few thousand you know one hundred thirty eight to to you know seven hundred thirty five thousand volts. So there's a big difference there between what is being moved and what's coming out of the sockets, and that's a hence that conversion that stepping down is really important. Gotcha. So so volts. Uh, last uh, last episode we talked about watts. How do how do watts relate to volts? Firstly, you've got to kind of imagine an electricity circuit a conductor to be like a pipe that's moving 
moving energy. And uh, and uh, what is the flow uh, of of electricity? It's the kind of the ultimate power behind it. And that is a product of two different things: what we call you know, volts and amperes or amps. Those two things together multiplied up are the watts. So you know, the, if you you know you multiply those those two measures, you know, to get that amount of amount of power and if you think of it from that pipeline analogy the volts the amount of pressure in that pipeline is the amount of force that's pushing the energy of the electrons down the uh, you know down that pipe and the and the amperes are the amount of you know the amount of energy that can that can flow down there it's it's the, the number of electrons that you can get through that that conductor in a second Got it. So, so, so volts, the pressure, amperes, kind of the size of the pipe, and then the product. Volts times amperes equals watts. Okay, let's so let's turn back to the grid, and I'll be selfish starting at my house. So, like, if, if I look outside my window, I'm not at the moment that my shades are drawn so I can keep out all the noise, but I, I can see wires hanging on a pole. And you know, we call them telephone poles here in the U.S., but, you know, there's so many wires up there, it's probably less about telephone these days because uh, I keep that in my pocket. But what's happening up on those poles? Well, let's call them utility poles. Um, you know, how they're used in each country varies slightly, you know, as to you know to how how much they're shared and even even who owns them. You know, you know, typically in the US they can belong to individual companies. They might belong to a, a telco, you know, AT&T, Verizon, they might belong to they might belong to a town, uh them or they might belong to a, a large power utility. But often they're shared. There's an awful lot of you know, so you might have Copper lines that are used for telephones or or DSL based internet services. There can be coaxial cable for for cable TV services, and more and more often now you know, we we're seeing fiber optic cable being strung, you know, on those on those same poles in order to to get you know, faster and faster communications for both you know, TV, internet, and, and and phones there. But of course. You're, you know, one of the most important things that can be moved around on top of those wires is electricity. You know, without electricity, none of that other stuff works. All right, so so lots of wires, including electricity. Electrical wires, you can you can you can pick out because you know, often that there's a lot of more physical infrastructure around them. You can see you know, all the components that are there in order to support those those wires that are being hung from those poles. You typically going to see on a on majority of the distribution lines that you see around your home, between you know, wires that are carrying between twelve thousand volts and and thirty thousand volts, and they'll be um, and where there's a bare metal conductor there, you're going to see those connected to things called insulators. They are often pieces of porcelain or glass, which is prevent allowing that that wire to be mechanically strung without that energy being able to um you know to leak down to earth. Um you know, they often look like small small plates or, or small or almost like a mushroom. They they can even be made of of sometimes um, uh, polymers, uh, which you're, and um, and almost like a, with a almost a rubbery kind of consistency. So you know there's a there's a variety of different things there. Um, you'll often see more than one of those conductors as well. You can see you might see uh, you know, usually three or four of those wires. Um, you know being uh, three one for each uh, of the three electrical phases that you know that, that we get and uh, a, a neutral or an earth that you know something there you may see um 
a large cylinder attached you know to to the pole that that's typically a transformer that's one of these devices that's stepping that voltage down it's going to be connected to to those wires at uh, 12000 volts and and stepping it down to you know to the to the 240 volts that you you know it's being used used in the home you might get some small electrical switches or cutouts you know, manually operated uh you you have manually operated switches that can be you know can be operated by a lineman with you know with a with a pole or they can be um they they could be things like large fuses which are are used to protect against often you might have a, a grounding wire running on those poles they can be used to just um, so that that would be if any of those components was to fail it gives a, a safe path for that uh, for that electricity you know to to make its way down to earth in a safe way um you know just the the energy ultimately is always trying to get to earth and it gives it a safe path down there not all the wires that you might see are always carrying electricity sometimes you may have a steel wire that's traveling that's going from the from the top of the pole out and and physically attached to the ground as a guy wire to to attach that you know um, that pole securely um particular at a point where it might change direction or it's in a an area that is unstable so they won't be fitted to every every pole but uh but you know not every wire that you know that's on these will be carrying any electricity and uh, you know, usually they're at, a, at an angle, and um, you know, and you can see you you they um, how they're attached in, into the ground. Sometimes they they are covered you know with with plastic just to put, you know give them some mechanical protection. So not every wire you see will be carrying any electricity. We're actually going to pause there and pick it up in two weeks with Phil talking about the transmission side of the grid. So join us then, and until then, I'm Mark Urban for the Learning Lab on Control Loop. That's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is crafted by Elliot Peltzman, with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Rash and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.